0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, are you going to make us tread into some unsolved mysteries today?
0: Oh, yeah. We're going to get into some classic unsolved mysteries territory, at least to kick off this episode. Oh, boy. do dicka dicka do 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 dicka dicka do, 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 do There you go. That takes me back. Uh, back to the the eighties and nineties, uh, especially uh, around nineteen ninety uh, itself, because that is the year that an episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired that touched on crop circles oh, in the United yeah. Kingdom. Yeah, I remember these because yeah, they weren't always just unsolved uh, murders and disappearances and Matthew McConaughey screaming in a uh, like a, a driveway somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they got increasingly into these. Um, these paranormal things, right? These paranormal topics.
1: I don't know if it was just like the TV I watched when I was a kid, like for for whatever reason, whatever happened to be on in my house, or if this is what TV was like in the 90s. I remember '90s TV was just wall to wall paranormal, cryptids, conspiracies, <laughs> stuff like that. Was that like what every show was about, or was that just what my parents were
0: watching? Or I mean, it, for me, a lot of it was just it was what was on, and then it was what you, you gravitated towards. There were only so many channels, and you watch TV at at its uh, you know at its pace. And so uh, I, I would, for whatever reason, tune in and watch and solve Mysteries or In Search Of or whatever mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, cryptid uh, pseudoscientific yeah. show happened to be on. <laughs> but yeah, I remember uh, one
1: of the things that I was really convinced of from television when I was a child. I must have been in second grade or something. And I was like, oh, definitely aliens are real. <laughs> That's absolutely one of my issues. And those crop circles, those are awesome. And they were definitely
0: aliens. Yeah, the crop circles definitely were part of just the overall sort of unsolved mysteries argument for the existence of aliens, right? You had it was almost like a a holy trinity of UFO sightings, alien abduction uh, experiences, mm-hmm. and then those crop circles. Yeah, you had the physical proof, the uh, the experience, and just the sighting of things in the sky. It just it just felt like here's the complete argument.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the crop circles were the one part of it where you didn't have to rely on somebody's eyewitness testimony. It was just like, here's the evidence. What else could have made these circles? Turns out maybe a lot of things could have, especially like people. But <laughs> um, but some you look at some of the circles and you can see why people were convinced because I am quite impressed by the artistry of a good many crop circles. You go and like Google these images. In some cases, I'm like, why aren't these hoaxters just like artists?
0: They're they, Some of them are quite beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen photos of crop circles, which I'll be surprised if you haven't, do a search. See these things. They they are impressive in many cases. Uh, They they begin popping up in the 1970s, mostly in the UK, and they had these just increasingly elaborate patterns. You know, they started off kind of simple and they just got more and more elaborate to the point where it becomes – becomes kind of difficult at times to so look at it and think of just uh, a few human hoaxsters running around in the night.
1: Now, to be perfectly clear, we should explain th- the exact physical reality of what a crop circle is. Generally, it's in a field, often mm-hmm. like a cereal, you know, like a grain, like wheat field or something like right. that, where there would be tall stalks of something, of plants, and that they get flattened in a pattern that's usually circular in nature and often increasingly complex as the years go
0: on. Yeah, I have to also throw in, even though I don't recall if I if if you had crop circles showing up in cornfields. Uh, I think maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe so. But I feel like there's also the the fact that uh, the, that you had Children of the Corn, and it's <laughs> it's infinite sequels popping uh, up around the same time. So there was this idea in, especially like the Zeitgeist of the VHS store going child that. Uh, large-scale agriculture is inc- is just inherently creepy.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, there's a re- it showed up in the X-Files a lot. There would oh, be yeah. like X-Files episodes where they stumble onto a big scary farm and mm-hmm. something's happening there. There's like the, the farm where they had the bees, these genetically engineered bees or something.
0: OK. So you got genetically engineered bees. You got what? Uh, he Who Walks Between the Rows, I think, was the Lovecraftian entity and the original uh, Children of the Corn. And then you have these – complex at times geometric patterns that are just carefully lined up out there uh, in the middle of a field.
1: Now, I think the obvious implication, if you haven't Delved into this literature is that like spaceships are landing, <laughs> yeah, and for some reason they always land where there is tall vegetation near civilization to be photographed. Uh, and and another thing is that crop circles often don't look all that impressive if you're standing on the ground, but if you take a picture from up above, they look really cool, right? Uh, but the idea is like a ship lands and it makes these patterns.
0: Yeah, I just got like the cookie cutter pattern of the ship. Uh, but but then there were other explanations as well. Well, it's maybe not the ship. Just landing, but it's some sort of alien communication, or it's some sort of mystic Earth energy, such as orgone energy. Oh boy, (laughs) Um, or everything else under the sun, including big Bigfoot, a whole (laughs) organ. What Bigfoot? Bigfoot. He just occasionally morphs to have a big circular foot. (laughs) Well, you know, every night Bigfoot goes out there and just starts pushing down the uh, the wheat Uh until he he forms this complex geometric pattern. I don't know. We'll come back to that theory later uh, in this episode. (laughs) But you had a whole whole organizations, a whole publications popping up. I'd I, I just go even so far as to say you have sort of a, a system of paranormal, paranormal belief springing up around these patterns. Mm-hmm. Now, as Carl Sagan points out in The Demon Haunted World, he spends a little time talking about crop circles. He says that at least some scientifically minded folks or folks with some degree of scientific training did present some theories that were still – a little fringy, but at least based more in in, in uh, observable reality. Yeah, uh, There were theories that there was some sort of strange whirlwind, like a columnar vortex or a ring vortex. Mm. Uh, there were also those that said, OK, but it's got to be ball lightning. Ball lightning <laughs> is probably
1: involved. Here. I mean, obviously, I don't think crop circles are caused by aliens, but I think a lot of these other explanations are also not – maybe not as unlikely as aliens, but pretty
0: unlikely. Right. But again, these were impressive patterns and uh, you know they were elaborate, they were beautiful and uh, they sometimes seem to have been created in like mere two to three hour windows in the dark mm-hmm. and there would be additional accounts of, of how say, oh, well, there were no footsteps seen, there were no flashlights seen, all of this adding to the mystery and, and making it uh, seem you know increasingly unlikely that humans had anything to do with this at all. I don't
1: know, I mean, I've already alluded to my theory, which I think is the pretty much the the common theory that people would have is that these things are made by people who are creating them on purpose as hoaxes or art or whatever. I've never seen any crop circle as impressive and even beautiful as some of them are that doesn't look like something that could have been created by some people with a plan and some rope
0: and a board. Exactly. Now, I'll come back to Bigfoot at the very end of this episode. But, uh, no, indeed, um, every crop circle that has ever been reported is entirely consistent with human activity, with human causation, and human hoax making. Mm-hmm. There's not a single crop circle that has ever been uh, observed where where experts will have weighed in and said, yep, there's no way humans could have done that. No, <laughs> in, in every case, humans could have done it done it, and humans did do it. Um, as delightful and fun as most of the fringe explanations are, they're completely unnecessary when we, the human hoaxsters, are right here in particular two human hoaxers who who made the headlines in 1991 Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley announced that they had been making crop circles for 15 years whoa these were uh, two Southampton residents in the UK and uh, they said that they used uh, first a heavy steel security bar that you would like you know bar a door with mm-hmm. uh, they used that then they moved on to planks and ropes and they were in, and then they would use these to just push down the, uh, uh, the the wheat pushed down whatever the cereal uh, crop happened to be. Mm-hmm. And they were inspired by UFO stories and they started doing it just for fun and it became progressively better at it as time uh, went on. Uh, more daring in their execution and as people began to follow their their, their works, their exploits uh, they followed the literature as well and would even mess with them by intentionally throwing off interpretations <laughs> uh, like somebody might be commenting on oh well there's this clockwise pattern and then so the next one they would do a counterclockwise Pattern uh-huh. just to mess with them, like they really got into the uh, the spirit of the thing. And then you have copycat crop circles popping up uh, in the UK and beyond the UK. It begins to take on a life of its own. But then eventually, by 1991, uh, they grew they grew tired of the hoax. They were getting older. I think they were in their 60s at this point. They realized they couldn't carry it on forever. Um, and there was just just less satisfying to do so. They were having uh, there was also some some difficulties in um, in dealing with copycats because there was some there's some pretty shoddy work out there, right? And they they apparently started uh, trying to incorporate like a DD because uh, they were you know uh, Doug and Dave uh, making sure that they kind of signed their work. <laughs> uh, and this was of course interpreted by uh, by by some of the uh, quote unquote experts as being some other kind of alien glyph. Doomsday, yeah, <laughs> Doomsday. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they came clean. Uh, less elaborate crop circles continued, of course, and as Sagan pointed out uh, in The Demon Haunted World, quote, As always, the confession of the hoax is greatly overshadowed by the sustained initial ex- excitement. Many have heard of the pictograms in cereal grains and their alleged UFO connection, but draw a blank when the names of Bauer and Chorley are or the very idea that the whole business may may be a hoax are raised.
1: I mean, this is a problem that goes beyond just hoaxes, right? This Mm -hmm. is a problem of any time there's an interesting story that turns out to be untrue. And I would say, unfortunately... As interesting as the real world is, you do have to consider the fact that like the more shocking or more attention-grabbing a story is, Mm -hmm. probably the more suspicious you should be of it, right? Because that, you know, there's a natural selection effect on what kinds of stories get picked up and repeated and shared on media and on the internet these days and all that. They just kind of naturally things that are very attention-catching bubble to the surface and they have a better shot at getting that kind of reach as a story than something that is maybe more... More likely to be true, but less attention grabbing. And this is true of like scientific studies. I I feel like the ones that are most likely to later get retracted are the ones that are like, wow, that's a really weird result. And then the retraction doesn't usually get noticed nearly as much, right? Because that's just not that interesting. Right.
0: And it will be like either the initial uh, flawed study or – you know, or, or it'll be some story about a, a flawed study that will continue to make the rounds on social media. Yeah. And then somebody else has to say, actually, you know, th- this was retracted later on, or this was disproven. Well, then you always
1: got to worry if by bringing up the story again to mention the fact that it's not actually true, you're just spreading
0: the original false story, even if you make clear that it's not true. Yeah. I mean, I'm engaging with the post, right? And that's probably, be re- be, it's probably being rewarded in the almighty algorithm anyway. Yeah.
1: And the illusory truth effect, which we did a couple of episodes mm-hmm. about, it, If people have been exposed to an idea, even in the context of it being explained as being untrue, they're more likely to believe it later.
0: Right. And if you're really invested in the idea of crop circles being, uh, you know, communications from essentially the gods, Mm -hmm. right, uh, then you probably have some spin on it, right? Well, these two guys came forward and then claimed responsibility for some of them or maybe, you know, some shadowy organization. The Illuminati paid these guys to come forward to take the heat. (laughs) Uh, off of everybody. but So the aliens, they were fall
1: guys. Right. Yeah. Well, as fascinating as crop circles are, they are not the only case in the world where we can find strange geometrical designs out in nature and wonder what caused it. So with that little tease, maybe we should take a quick break and then come back to discuss another realm of strange geometric patterns out there to be
0: found. And we're back. All right, so today we're not talking about mysterious circles here uh, in the surface realm. Uh, we're talking about circles in the deep, where humans Whoa. enjoy far less freedom to rework the landscape with their, their hoaxes and their ingenuity. Uh, and also far less uh, uh, ability to observe these strange patterns. Circles in the deep.
1: Boom. <laughs>
0: Unsolved Mysteries. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Yes. uh, So, But for a while, this was an unsolved mystery. Uh, But but here's the thing. Sometimes a mystery presents itself and the answer is even more amazing than anything we could possibly dream up about uh, underwater aliens or what have you.
1: Yeah, I think that can be true because often even when we discover that the answer to something isn't actually aliens, which of course discovering aliens would be fascinating, discovering that the answer is something else is more likely to tell us something about the nature of Earth life, which is very relevant to us. It matters on this planet. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I love a good deep sea mystery, right? I mean, of course, uh, like a mysterious shipwreck, that's, that's great. But you know where the ships came from, right? That's not a mystery. What about other things? uh, Mysterious sort of uh,
0: just uh, shapely anomalies in the deep. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a number of different uh, mysteries that have popped up uh, sometimes they're they're a bit vague, you know. Like it's just uh, we're not sure to what extent the physical reality on the seafloor matches our readings or you know sonar uh, readings, what, what what have you. But uh, but but sometimes those mysteries uh, um, are related to, to what seem to be uh, unnatural patterns or formations. For instance, there's Japan's uh, uh, Yonaguni Monument, or there's the Gulf. Of uh, combat discovery, and there are a whole list of others out there with varying degrees of verification. Though, of course, in the in the extreme interpretation, they're all potentially Atlantis. They're all Atlantis. Yeah, yeah that's
1: <laughs> you know there were there was more than one Atlantis, and they all got swallowed by the sea. That's how it worked.
0: But but a lot of these uh, you know that I'm alluding to, and we could certainly come back at some point and do a, a more in depth uh, look at them. But a lot of times, it's something like, oh, well, this is these are some curious. Uh, Right angles uh, appearing on the seafloor or look at these strange spherical formations, these circles, something that maybe looks a little Stonehenge-esque or looks like it could be the remains of an ancient city or the the remnants of something that might have been man-made.
1: Yeah, there's nothing more enticing than coming across geometric patterns that seem out of shape in the place you find them. That's why some like ice formations, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. ice crystals can form in ways that look as if they've been designed artificially. Things like snow rollers and the like, you know, that's always cool and you wonder like, did something make this? How did this come about? And so today we're going to be focusing on an underwater geometric anomaly like this. So to get geographically oriented, we're going to travel to Japan, okay? So we're going to an island called Amami Oshima off the southern coast of mainland Japan, north of Okinawa. It's a volcanic island with a humid subtropical climate surrounded by coral reefs and home to plenty of interesting marine life. I know there's some like whale watching stuff around Mm -hmm. there. I think I've also read that it's like the northernmost point of the Dugong territory around there. And also, for some reason, it seems like a lot of famous singers come from this island. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Or at least they're listed on its Wikipedia page. I'm not sure why why all the singers, but uh, maybe somebody has a clue there. But back in 1995, divers off the coast of this island found a strange anomaly in the seabed. Uh, So to picture it, imagine you're swimming along. Over the surface of the seafloor and you got your scuba tank and all that and you come across a strange pattern of dunes in the sandy sea bottom. Now they're not just random drifts of sand like you might expect to see created by the patterns of moving water. These elevations and depressions in the sand actually form a complex, striking geometric shape. They're arranged in a giant circle, about two meters in diameter. So that's like six or seven feet wide. And it's not just a circle. It's circles within circles with radial trenches, usually in different layers, dug into the seabed and evenly spaced trenches for these outer rings with radial trenches that extend out. And then towards the center with this complex maze-like pattern of shallow trenches and veins inside an innermost disk. And if I may voice my opinion, it is creepy looking. It's, <laughs> it's a real suggestion of like forbidden geometries and coded messages from the Hadean angels of the deep. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean it, – it, Oh,
0: absolutely. It, yeah, it has the, the look of say an, a, an eye opening on the seafloor.
1: Yeah, but with like a maze in the pupil of the eye yeah. and bones in the iris of the eye.
0: Yeah, if we if we were to uh, do yet another uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind spinoff just for underwater stuff, I would say, let's do This is the Logo. Oh, it should yeah. absolutely be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are no plans to do that, by the way. But if we did, that, this would totally be it.
1: I'd say that would be a good choice. Now, these circular patterns in the ocean floor have been known by several names. Sometimes they're called mystery circles. Sometimes they've been called underwater crop circles. <laughs> I guess that makes sense if your crop is sand. Uh, though, funny enough, I think there are actually like sand harvesting operations all around the world that I think can
0: sometimes be quite destructive. But these are not great names. We can do better <laughs> no. than this. Okay. I propose – what about Poseidograms? Ooh, that's nice. That's nice. It, 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 uh, it conveys a sense of communication. Yeah. And, of course, a, a sea god.
1: And this thing really does in many ways look like a symbol or deliberate work of art or communication.
0: Uh, I've got a couple here. How about uh, – Protean oscillations of the Tritonian sands. Okay. That's – if you're if you're not into the whole brevity thing, but mm-hmm. that's a good one. Or another one I have is Sirenian spirographs.
1: Yes. I feel you on that one. Oh, my God. It
0: is like a spirograph, like those uh, things yeah, – what yeah. is that
1: toy called? Like is it called spiro- a okay. it's just
0: a spirograph, but we don't have one in our households, uh, uh, so I, I, I'm not completely sure. I never had one as a kid either.
1: The inner disk especially really – because you've got the, these like radial trenches going out towards the outer edges. Mm-hmm. But this inner disk, especially with the more – the weirder, more maze-like structure, it reminds me of a spirograph sort of or kind of like – you know those Celtic knot designs? Oh, yeah. I see people – I don't really know anything about what those are. I think they have some kind of cultural significance. I don't know anything about them. But the, it looks kind of like that.
0: Millhouse would have loved this. Exactly. Millhouse? Yeah, wasn't Millhouse a Spirograph uh, enthusiast? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I seem to recall that he was. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he goes down
1: scuba diving off the coast of this island, everything may be coming up Millhouse because he <laughs> might be likely to come across one of these. But the question is. What causes them? Now, their sighting in 1995 wasn't the only time they've ever appeared. Other divers have apparently spotted them across the years, no doubt always making people wonder about the messages from the alien deep or elaborate,
0: unannounced, uh, like, underwater art projects. And to go back to some of those crop circle theories, it's easy to imagine that someone might have seen these and contemplated some sort of strange vortices in the deep being behind it, you know, some sort of... uh, uh, you know vortex yeah uh, swirling up the sand and leaving this pattern
1: you can maybe imagine something like that it feels almost too deliberate or designed to be that mm-hmm. way but you know some sometimes things in nature can be deceiving like we were just talking about like some formations of ice look really
0: like they were designed but they're not they just grow that way I mean you look at a snowflake right I mean <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, we're all kind of over it we've all seen snowflakes we know the complexity and, and beauty of uh, of the crystals uh, but uh, if you, if you take a step back and you sort of uh, you know clean the slate and look at it i mean this is absolutely amazing to behold. It looks like something that has been designed.
1: And all that just tells you that our intuitions about what looks natural and what looks designed are sometimes sort of on track, but they can be way off base too. Right. Now, if we consider the idea of design for these things, like if they were some sort of underwater art project, like the crop circles, if they'd been made by hoaxers or or artists, people who wanted others to come see what they had done – I would have wondered how would a human expect them to be discovered with them being down on the seabed and with them being so ephemeral in nature? I mean, these are not monuments made of bronze. They're not even crop circles with flattened grass and plants. They're they're patterns carved in underwater sand. So they're liable to be washed away by the whimsical, you know, mechanics of water and marine life in almost no time in probably a matter of days. Who would make such
0: a thing? Well, you might say Doug and Dave from earlier. <laughs> I mean, in a weird way, the the time frame would match up. 91, they're done with crop circles. 90, uh, what, 95? Yeah. Suddenly there are circles on the bottom of the sea. Maybe they learned, they got their scuba licenses and they set out for Japan. Ah, uh, no, that's not what happened. But, uh, but you know, if we were to compare this to to human art, uh, I would say the nearest examples I can think of are, are sand castles or the mandalas of colored sand and Tibetan customs. Oh yeah. Except, uh, you know, as we alluded to earlier, uh, they're they're not only fleeting, but they're in places of extremely limited human traffic. Yeah, you would only expect to like scuba divers to find these. Right, and then. Uh, you know, they they may be in areas where there just aren't that many. Well, there aren't that many scuba divers, just period, compared to the rest of the human population. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, compared to you know other creatures living in the sea, and uh, so that most of them will, might just go unobserved. It, it would be like if I decided to build a tiny Stonehenge out of barbecue pork ribs <laughs> in the middle of a rainforest. You know, <laughs> like yeah. nobody's going to see it, and it's going to be gone. You know, probably almost immediately.
1: Uh, some ambitious artist out there is taking out, though, Robert. <laughs> you know, actually, I can see that being a great art project if you just leave a camera filming it, like yes. put, put food out in the rainforest of various kinds and just time lapse, watch what happens to it. That is art.
0: Well, there, we, we went into this a little bit in our old episode, uh, Unfinished, on various unfinished pieces of art and mm-hmm. art that is intentionally unfinished. And I think we talked a little bit about art that is intentionally fleeting, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, various sculptures that have been made out of something that will decay, um, or certainly the self-shredding uh, piece of art that uh, Banksy recently oh, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> debuted. Uh, you know, that sort of That was of pretty good. Yeah, well, that was pretty good. I, I did like that. Uh, so it's not to say that these patterns are like beyond the pale when it comes to to human art. Like, yeah, humans could conceivably do this. We are weird creatures. Uh, but the the actual explanation is even weirder. So we're going to take one more break. And when we come back... We'll see if you manage to guess. So you have one more ad break to try and guess what is causing the pattern. All right, we're back.
1: Okay, so now we're going to get to the real explanation for the underwater crop circles. So around 2011, 2012 – a team of researchers named Hiroshi Kawase, Yoji Okata, who uh, also I think is an underwater photographer who documented these, these patterns, and Kimiaki Ito. They finally performed research to confirm the origin and function of these underwater mystery circles. The results were published in 2013 in Nature Scientific Reports. And here's what we found out. The real culprit
0: is fish sex. Ah, fish sex. Always weirder than aliens. You're
1: right, and we're never going to run out of amazement for fish sex. We talked about this with Mara Hart. Like, marine... Uh, marine reproduction is just like, it's the, what's it, what's the magical thing? The endless bag, you just reach in and oh, there's the, all- The
0: bag of holding, I guess. Yeah, yeah. or
1: the magic well, yeah you, yeah. you just never run out. There's always more interesting, weird mating and reproduction practices
0: under the waves. Now, certainly finish listening to this episode before you go in search of footage, but there is some fabulous footage of oh, what yes. we're going to be talking about here. And our devoted Attenborough viewers probably guessed from the very beginning, mm-hmm. because the fifth episode of the Six-part TV series, Life Stories, uh, from a couple years back, has some amazing footage of these circles and, uh, of, and the fish sex responsible for it. If you're a Netflix viewer in the United States, then you have access to this uh, show as of this recording.
1: Did that come out in 2014?
0: Yes, I believe it did.
1: Yeah, I actually went and watched this, especially after you recommended it. And it is wonderful to watch. It's also kind of funny.
0: Yeah, but be just beautifully filmed too, and they yeah. do a great job uh, revealing what has been created in the sand.
1: It's a BBC nature documentary. Yeah, you know? they know how to do it. They do. Uh, so specifically, these forbidden geometries were caused by the mating rituals of a genus of puffer fishes called Torcogener, which in Latin I believe means something about making circles. I think like the Latin word torques can be translated as necklace, uh, but I'm not fully sure about that translation. I think there's something going on there. Anyway, specifically, the species in question – is now called Torkigener albomaculosis, or the white-spotted pufferfish. And Robert, I've included an image for us to look at here. I'm sorry you at home can't see it, but we'll do our best to describe it. He's a small but magnificent little specimen.
0: Yeah, if you're looking up this episode uh, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, I will include uh, an image of these fish uh, below the fold, you know, mm-hmm. so so as not to spoil it for anybody, but you, you might look at them and you you're going to instantly recognize that this is some kind of, of puffer fish, you know, that the, the distinctive kind of head shape and face, and right. sometimes it is very much like a face. If you've ever been to an aquarium and you've uh, gone to take a picture of them with your smartphone, sometimes it will do the like the little facial identification square. Over their little face. Oh yeah, yeah. Or if you, and then if like you, put it thinks them, it's a person. Yeah, they're really like, oh, I see the face. Let's uh, let's frame this up. And then when you go to put that photo on social media, it may say, hey, don't you want to tag the toadfish here? Yeah, uh, or auto tag. Isn't this your friend Jeffrey? Yeah, this is this is probably Jeffrey or, <laughs> or Ron or one of these other people. Um, now, one of the things though is when you look at this particular pufferfish, you might think, well, this this guy's not that flashy. Uh, now, now to be fair, he's still a beautiful fish. All the members of the family uh, Tetrio Dante de Rio are beautiful because we're talking about pufferfish, puffers, balloonfish, blowfish, blowies, bubblefish, globefish, swellfish, toadfish, toadies, honey toads, sugar toads, and the mighty sea squab. <laughs> Um, now, th- they are related to porcupine fish, but they're not – but the porcupine fish are not actually part of this family. Uh-huh. Still, they're, they're all amazing creatures. So many of them are toxic. Uh, they can move their eyes independently. Uh, some can actually alter their patterns for camouflage purposes. And puffers can, of course, inflate their bodies with water or even air if they're out of the water to form an imposing – beep. To take on the form of an imposing spiked sphere, You know, kind of like the head of a medieval mace. Uh-huh.
1: And is this the reason that they often look kind of strangely shaped to begin with?
0: Yeah, like sometimes they have a very boxy appearance, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, back, back to T. Albomaculosis here. He's beautiful, but unlike the rest of the family, he's, he's, he's not that flashy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have amazing glittering colorization. He doesn't have a bunch of cool spines. So when it comes to catching the eyes of a potential mate, he has other tools up his sleeve.
1: Exactly right. And that's where this underwater sign in the sand comes in. If the male wants to mate... He carves the sacred sign.
0: Ah, it's like a like like a like a hobo glyph for for breeding. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: not. Uh, except instead of like good beans here or whatever, it's like good mating here. <laughs> uh, so we've heard of males in the animal kingdom before who advertise mating fitness with big tails or loud songs or bright colors, but this this building of what looks like geometric art in the sand of the seabed is a strange and fascinating form of mate attraction. Now, of course, these pufferfish would not be the only animals that build a physical structure to attract mates. Uh, One uh, example that immediately comes to mind that we've talked about on the show before is bowerbirds, where males build these elaborate nests to attract females for mating.
0: Yeah, and if you want to talk about um, nature documentary superstars, the the bowerbirds have definitely enjoyed a lot of screen time. Uh, You know, they, they craft these... These structures that entail form and colors that, you know, that are purely statements of fitness. They're not building structures to live in. Mm-hmm. It's all about uh, communicating with a potential mate. Another interesting thing about bowerbirds, though, that that sometimes I forget if I'm watching like one documentary covering one species and and, and not another species, is that some species of bowerbird are rather plain looking, kind of fitting the. Um, uh, you know, the the, the, uh, the the form we've been talking about here, a creature that is not flashy but does something flashy. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you have creatures like the flame bower bird. Whoa. Which has... has kind of the same color scheme as those bright orange uh, dismemberment-prone fireys in Jim Henson's (laughs) Labyrinth. Do you remember those creatures?
1: Uh, He looks to me like a Days of Thunder sunset.
0: He does. Yeah, he looks He's he's actually, he's brighter than the fireys. He's brighter, just about brighter than any sunset I've seen. He looks as bright as like the most obnoxious slushy you might purchase Uh at a a roadside slushy stand. He's He's something from that flip book they got at the tables at Chili's. Yeah, exactly. So he's, he's, this is already a really bright specimen, so it's almost kind of amazing to realize that that he's go, he's going the step beyond. He's g- going to create this this impressive bower to bring in a mate.
1: Now, one interesting thing about bower birds is that, you know, you see this contrast between like flashy colors that they would show off, which are often a sign of like mate fitness that mm-hmm. males can use to sig- signal attractiveness to females, but also building these nests is that I, I've read that there is sometimes a trade-off there, like the flashier looking bower birds mm-hmm. d- build less elaborate nests. And the ones that look, uh, le- you know, more drab and have less colors and stuff build more elaborate nests pres- presumably as like a compensation mechanism it's like hey i don't have all the you know the flashy outfits but i can build a really good house
0: well that's reassuring it feels like there's still some balance to the universe
1: now another bird that i really love for uh, for its nest building capabilities as an advertisement of mate fitness is known as the <laughs> brush turkey oh, yes. Ale- <laughs> Alectura lethami And these these are pretty funny, I think. They're (laughs) one of my favorites. Um, So, they're a species of megapode, which is a type of bird. Of course, megapode means huge foot. And the males of this species build these gigantic mounds of rotting compost, (laughs) often as big as a car, like 1 to 1.5 meters high and 4 meters wide, out of soil and dead plant matter and just rotting stuff. And these are nests they use to attract females, and they're not merely an aesthetic statement like, you know, why wouldn't you like to come hang out on my gigantic pile of rot? <laughs> the the decomposition of dead stuff that's taking place in the mound actually generates a lot of heat, which helps keep the female's eggs warm when she lays them on the mound she's chosen. And they uh, – apparently, the the brush turkeys even reportedly regulate the temperature of the mound by adding or removing plant matter if the temperature isn't just right.
0: Oh, huh, that's brilliant.
1: But as you can imagine, building like a car-sized mound of rotting plant matter is not an easy task. You know, so a turkey does this, it might take him a month to do it, and it can basically like wear him to death to do this thing. So you got to think about the real stakes that are taking place in nature here. Just building this big compost heap to mate in, this is a, this is a serious investment that could be thought of as like a life-or-death proposition.
0: And this brings us back to the white-spotted pufferfish. Oh yeah, what what are its reasons? Right, like what it's 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 making an investment here. Uh, what sort of investment?
1: Yeah, exactly. When you look at these strange ephemeral carvings in the loose sediment of the seafloor, what is the male pufferfish doing, and why is the female attracted? And also, I mean, consider the amazing disparity in scale with the amount of work we're talking about here. Because these patterns that are carved in the sand are up to two meters across, which is like six or seven feet. Meanwhile, this fish that makes them is only like 10 to 12 centimeters long, maybe about five inches. So to get a sense of the scale of this and the work involved, I want to quote our friend and and recent guest on the show, the marine biologist Mara Hart from her book Sex in the Sea. She writes, quote, Next time you visit a beach, imagine building a giant sand wheel with radiating spokes and troughs that stretch over 100 feet across. Now imagine carving the whole thing by scooting around on your bottom, <laughs> which is basically what this male fish does. This tiny fish that could fit in the palm of your hand builds this giant elaborate artwork by rubbing its body and fins along on the sand, vibrating its pectoral fins, anal fin, and tail fin, and pushing its ventral surface. Surface, Which means it's underbelly into the sand to sort of push it down and forward. And after he's carved these peaks and valleys into the sand, he also further decorates the carving with bits of material he finds like coral and pieces of seashell that go up on the uh, – along these radial lines. Apparently, this usually takes about a week of constant work to make the design like this. And as we've been saying, it's like it's totally ephemeral. This nest that it builds in the sand will soon be churned away by the sea. So why all this work? Now, one idea is that this elaborate design helps the female find the male pufferfish, right? Because when you make a design like this, it creates an unnatural pattern of contrast in bright and dark patches uh, along the seafloor. And the sand attracts the female's eye on the otherwise monotonous bottom of the ocean.
0: Right. It's it's like it's a roadside billboard advertising, hey – Here I am.
1: Right. Now, this might be part of the explanation. It probably does help her see him, but it's clearly not all of it. So I want to refer to a study by the authors I mentioned earlier by uh, uh, Kawasi, Okada, and Ito. And this is their study from 2013 in Scientific Reports, Role of Huge Geometric Circular Structures in the Reproduction of a Marine Pufferfish. So the researchers here hypothesized, based on their observations, that something about the quality of the nest plays a role in mate choice. Like you build a better nest, and you get a better chance at mating. But they had not identified what all of those qualities of an attractive nest were. Though here's one possible element that comes out of their research: they found that the creation of this structure is probably not just aesthetic. It's not just that the female likes the way it looks. It actually does something. And what they found is that the process of digging the radial trenches, when the male goes through and digs these radial lines that go out to make the outer circle of the pattern, it tends to stir up fine-grained particles of sand and helps push them toward the center of the circle. So that the finished product of this symbol uh, nest should contain very fine sediment at its hub. Now, if a female begins to approach the nest, the male will usually fan the central disk of this fine sediment to churn up a cloud in the water, and then he'll swim back and forth through the cloud that he's churned up. And if the female likes what she sees, she will enter the nest area and travel to the center where these shallow designs and the finest sand particles are. And if she does this, the male will usually dart back and forth a few times around the nest in, in a display of some kind. I remember in, in the section in her book, uh, Mara Hart mentions that it's hard not to think of him being like, did you see this part? I made this and this too. <laughs> I mean, he looks kind of proud.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they, they're, they're cute little fish. Yeah, I mean they're they're cute little fish. It's very difficult not to anthropomorphize them. Again, you coming back to that the, their distinctive uh, sort of head and face shape.
1: Yeah, if the facial recognition algorithm in the computer has a hard time telling them from human. Who knows what, you know. Yeah. We are very quick to look at an animal and and see its behavior and think of it as human behavior. But anyway, if, if she is enticed, she, she goes to the center with the fine sand and they spawn. She lays her eggs among this fine-grained sediment and then she leaves. And then the male stays behind with the nest to guard the fertilized eggs. In a kind of beautiful twist here, he stays there to guard the eggs as the nest essentially dissolves and deteriorates around him.
0: Yeah, All the art he has created is, uh, is, is steadily eroded. Now, uh, I, I should point out about the spawning uh, that they'll uh, they'll do this thing where the male will uh, will will bite the female's cheek. Yes, uh, I've seen some some pictures of this. In fact, I'll probably include a picture of this at the the bottom of the page on, at stuff dot com. But it, it's kind of endearing because he's like, oh, he's giving her a love nibble. It's like a little kiss on the cheek. Uh-huh. Now, another point in all of this is that uh, some scientists think the ridges and grooves of the circle serve to minimize ocean current at the center of the nest. Uh And this would protect the actual nest site from turbulence that might disturb the eggs and expose them to predators. So the very turbulence that's eroding and destroying the circular artwork, it's kind of taking a bullet for that central nesting area.
1: Yeah, and I think also, if I understand correctly, that the, that protection from the ocean currents in the center also helps keep the fine-grained sand mm. particles there that would normally be more easily washed away by the water currents. Now, here's a really interesting thing about these puffer fish. After they hatch and and the young disappear, the male does not reuse the nest. Instead, he goes on to build a totally new nest for the next mating cycle, which is a tremendous amount of work. Remember, Mm -hmm. again, like try to think about building a like 100-foot wide uh, symbol in the beach sand by dragging your butt along. Like it's just like why go through all that work while the old nest just continually gets washed away into nothing? Like we, we don't. I think often appreciate how much of a risky investment building big nests is for some animals in the wild. Like humans, you know, we go to the gym to intentionally burn calories in productless labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a fish living on the edge of a wild energy economy, the amount of work it takes to build an elaborate nest could potentially kill you.
0: It's kind of it's kind of like if what if humans, in order to mate, each of us had to make a concept album. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just required. Like you weren't even going to have a shot unless you, uh-huh. you fully wrote and produced and you know, like brought in Sessions musicians and, and uh, commissioned artwork and just had the full package. And that was your communication to potential mates in the world. You might go bankrupt during the process. You might get terrible reviews or Here's my, destroy
1: friendship. This is my prog rock concept album
0: about the Silmarillion. <laughs> exactly. Truly, it is the only way to stand out. That's right. Reproductive fitness uh, exemplified there. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so
1: with this question for the Pufferfish, like why make the rock opera album about the Silmarillion new each time? Why not just like sort of like touch up the last concept
0: album you made? Yeah, kind of do like everybody, uh, most acts do, right? Just uh-huh. do a slightly retweaking of what came before. Yeah. Just do the sequel. <laughs>
1: And the authors suggest that what's going on here is probably that the process of mating and then what's happening while, you know, the eggs are there waiting to hatch, it depletes the nest of these fine-grained sand particles, mm-hmm. which are somehow crucial for the female's eggs.
0: That would make sense. He has engineered this local environment and uh, and and now he needs to re-engineer another. It's kind of it, – it's like he's cut down the forest, built the love hut, The love hut is gone, now he needs to find a new virgin forest to uh, to, to, uh, to recreate in, in his image.
1: Yeah. Now, another study I just looked at very quickly uh, that I thought was kind of interesting was also in scientific reports. It was last year in 2018 by Mizuchi, Kawase, Shin, Iwaii, and Kondo. And this was called Simple Rules for Construction of a Geometric Nest Structure by Pufferfish. This answers the question, okay, something must be happening in the fish's brain to tell it how to build this underwater, you know, poseidogram, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happening? And the study observed and formalized rules for the creation of the nest sites, which it turned out are actually uh, a pretty simple algorithm that they were able to recreate with a computer program. This kind of reminds me of how we discussed in our episode about spiders building webs how a really relatively simple list of rules can lead to beautiful and haunting designs in nature. Like the algorithm itself for the creation of a structure by an animal doesn't have to be complex to create an emergently complex final structure that,
0: that looks very impressive to us. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a lot of it comes down to repetition. I mean, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing patterns. We're seeing pattern uh, patterns in the sand, in the crops, what have you.
1: But when you think about the attractiveness of patterns like this, say, what does the female see when she makes the choice? You know, she looks at one nest versus another nest and goes to one instead of the other or simply goes toward one but is not attracted enough to go Mm. to, uh, you know, another one she comes across. I I think about these questions like humans show broad preferences for certain kinds of abstract geometrical shapes and figures over others. For example, studies show that we – broadly prefer curved and symmetrical shapes over sharp-angled and asymmetrical shapes. And sometimes I wonder, like, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder how deep do these preferences go? Is it possible that animals with even, you know, much simpler nervous systems, like fish, for instance, also have similar preferences in in abstract geometric shapes not just that i you know have a, an avoidance behavior when i see something that resembles a predator versus i have an approach behavior when i see something that resembles a mating opportunity or food do, do they have more generalized, like, just geometric preferences rooted in the same kind of deep elements that we have, like, in our shared evolutionary history?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't come, can't help but come back to the fact that when we look at these designs that these pufferfish have created, like, they are alluring to us. They captivate our imagination. Yes. Is that a coincidence? Well, now, that, that's always a tricky question when you start dealing with uh, weird circles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if. You don't, you know, it, it, maybe it is a coincidence. You, you don't mm-hmm. want to uh, go too far down the road of saying, "Oh, it's not a coincidence; it is intended. Uh, it is part of the grand design." No, this I, is the, these are the aliens speaking to me.
1: You're misinterpreting, Robert. <laughs> I, I do not mean like that. I don't mean designed. I mean like is so, is some deep trigger in our brain that makes us like these rounded shapes with the maze-like patterns and the radial designs that's highly symmetrical. Do we basically have uh, uh, an approach-type reaction in the brain? You know, it's the basis of our general favorability ideas. An approach-type reaction in the brain the same way that a, a female pufferfish would. Is there a similar mechanism underlying it in the two brains that could even have something to do with shared ancestry, or is it just a coincidence that, you know, a pufferfish likes this design and we also like this design? I'm, I'm sure it could be a coincidence. I, I just wonder.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, undoubtedly there have been studies that have shown that human have a preference for, say, ar- uh, architectural designs that appear more like nature, that have more mm-hmm. natural shapes and yes. maybe don't look like giant boxes that have fallen out of the sky.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I feel like you just always have to wonder about the, the what what's causing these types of attractions in other animals. You know, Thomas Nagel famously wrote about, you know, you can't understand what it's like to be a bat. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, it, or maybe in some ways you can understand what it's like to be a pufferfish. You can't fully understand it, but you might have some of the same drives that exist for, you know, hundreds of millions of years.
0: Well, then others would say that there is no what it is to be a pufferfish, right? I mean, yeah. it's just the, the pufferfish as is a, is a, is a, is a state is something that we can try and put our minds into. But it's, it's ultimately I – mean, it's, it's it's kind of like trying to, to, to grab the sand pattern, Right.
1: Oh, you're backing me into a corner of uh, making me believe that you are just producing words that pretend they came from a mind.
0: <laughs> well, you know, there's that uh, that old uh, philosophical argument. Uh, if um, if you've never wondered what it's like to be a pufferfish, then congratulations, you are a puffer fish. No, <laughs> I just made that one up.
1: And if you've never wondered what it's like to be a radial trench in a puffer fish nest, you know what it's like is just anal fin all over you. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, we're going to close it out right there. We've we've solved the mystery. Or we didn't solve the mystery. Um, marine biologists solved the mystery. Uh, but we have uh, presented the mystery and presented the solution in this podcast. Now, uh, with our question for everyone out there is, hey, would you like more episodes about undersea mysteries? We could do that. There's, there are plenty out there. Maybe we could come back and talk about some of these uh, alleged... Uh, Underwater ruins or strange structures and forms that have been detected and what some of the more plausible explanations are uh, that don't involve Atlantis.
1: Oh, Robert, you just made me think that even though Atlantis is a false trail, the whole phenomenon of supposedly disappearing islands is something interesting we could visit in the future.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm always up for some sunken uh, cities and and lost islands for sure. Um, uh, Speaking of uh, of underwater mysteries… And, uh, and and so forth. Some of you might be thinking, hey, Robert, you, what, what happened about that show, Transgenesis, you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Didn't we so, we did a bunch of
1: ocean stuff to get ready for that.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing is uh, the, the show uh, was and is ready to go. Mm-hmm. But uh, we were asked to hold off on publishing it uh, for purely marketing reasons. <laughs> so – and I apologize for anyone um, uh, who encountered some confusion over that. Uh, but uh, the show is still coming. I'm so excited to hear it and you should be too. Keep yeah. an eye out. Uh, Also, if you want to listen to something else uh, besides stuff to blow your mind, check out Invention. That is the other show that Joe and I put together every week. It is a a journey through techno history. It's a look at the various inventions, big and small, elaborate and simple, uh, or seemingly simple, uh, or seemingly elaborate, depending (laughs) on uh, which one we're looking at. Uh, All these inventions that have changed the course of history and changed the, the shape of human experience.
1: Definitely check it out. If you like this show, we think you'll like that show too. So go over to Invention,
0: subscribe, check out our episodes. And in the meantime, head on over to to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of Stuff To Blow Your Mind's episodes. You'll find links out to social media accounts. Hey, on Facebook, you'll find our group. It is uh, called uh, the Stuff To Blow Your Mind discussion module. It's a great place to talk about Stuff To Blow Your Mind episodes, invention episodes, ask us questions, uh, suggest episodes for the future. That's where all of that goes down. And again, rate and review wherever you have the chance to do so. Uh, That is the best way to support our shows.
1: Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at
0: Oh man, you know Joe, I realized we closed out the episode, and I never got back around to Bigfoot. <gasps> you monster! I know. Knowing what we know now about um, uh, about the, these these mysterious sea circles and the culprit behind them, could uh, crop circles? Could could an alternative uh, explanation? Could it have been that Bigfoot monsters, Sasquatches, and their 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 kin were going out into fields and creating mating circles to draw in other um, uh, cryptids to mate with? Right there at the center of the of the craft circle.
1: That's how you get those
0: squatchacabras. Ah, yes. Anyway, I'll leave everybody else out there to uh, to, to to think about and to visualize all of this. But I, I said I was going to bring it back to big Bigfoot later on in the episode. And I just wanted to make sure we closed that out for you.
1: If you're the person who makes the Sharknado movies, squatchacabra comes next. <laughs> if you disappoint me, I'm going to shame you on this podcast to the end of time.